So this past week, a couple days ago, um, there was a supermoon, and uh, we didn't realize that, but we were watching TV at night, and Susan looked out the window, and she said, oh my goodness! And uh, so for a quick second, my spine tensed up, just because when you look out the window at night, and somebody says, oh my goodness, I didn't know what I was going to see out there. But it was massive, and it was bright, and... Um, this is because uh, the, the you know the moon is in its closest orbit to the Earth, and so it just appears huge, and um, it's reflecting, of course, the light of the sun, and it's massive. Uh, for the next six weeks, we're going to look at um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous pieces of literature in all history, teaching that Jesus did, um, which invites us to reflect uh, the light of God in the earth, like the super moon reflects the light of the sun. And um, so if we, are, if we are followers of Jesus, we desire very much to reflect his goodness, reflect his love, reflect his wisdom. And this is what this teaching invites us to do. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses this morning. Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor and pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Now, the whole teaching of the Sermon on the Mount starts with the passage that I read and actually goes all the way to chapter seven. And then chapter eight, it says, and Jesus went down the mountain. So he taught a lot of things. He said uh, a lot of stuff. And he begins with what lots of uh, people call, if you're new to church, lots of theologians refer to this passage I just read as the Beatitudes, uh, these attitudes that are supposed to be congruent with those that are following Jesus. And there's some serious uh, Old Testament Easter eggs here that I just got to share with you. And uh, they're worth noting. You know, in the Old Testament, Moses went up a mountain to deliver the law. And here what we find is Jesus, the greater Moses, goes up a mountain to expound on the law, actually talk about how, how deep the law actually goes. And he unapologetically calls all of his followers uh, to keep God's wise and loving law and live these lives uh, of love guided by God's law. And praise God, when, if you go forward a couple more verses, I didn't read it right here, but in verse uh, 17, Jesus thankfully says that he came not to abolish the law, not to do away with the law, but to actually fulfill the law. And I want you to notice the language. Uh, the language in this passage is transformative language. What do I mean by that? What I mean is Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who do certain things. 
What he's saying is, blessed are those who are a certain way. And the significance of this is, uh, is massive. Because if you miss that, if you miss that this is actually a, trans- a conversation about being transformed uh, by being a child of God, you're, not, you're gonna miss the point of the sermon and you kind of kind of miss the point of, of Christianity <laughs> because uh, he's not simply being another Moses and going up, going up on the mountain and saying, you know, I'm gonna deliver the law to you. Um, you know, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's the Torah. The Torah had 613 laws and the Pharisees were keeping those 613 laws. They were keeping them better than anybody. But Jesus didn't have many good things to say, any good things to say about the Pharisees. In fact, he said, you guys are the walking dead. Um, You know, you're whitewashed tombs. You look like you got it all together. You got your religious game strong on the outside, but you are dead inside. So this is why when we look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular, these Beatitudes, we want to realize what we're we're really um, grappling with here is not just a matter of a list of things that I ought to be doing, although, of course, I should be, more deeply than that. This is who I am becoming. This is who, as a follower of Christ, I'm called to be. And so this Sermon on the Mount, this calls Christians into congruence, calls us into congruence with who we are now because of what the Father planned, because of what the Son accomplished, because of what the Spirit is empowering. This is this beginning uh, of this uh, sermon that goes on for a couple chapters is all about this lifelong renewal. And, uh, and Jesus' introduction to his sermon is important because if I was to fast forward to the end, I'll give the end right now, it, the end of the sermon basically ends with, hey guys, there's two ways to live. Um, it's that very famous passage on building your house on the rock or building it on the sand. But where, where his sermon ends is either you're building on me or you're building on something infinitely less powerful than me. You're either building your life on Christ uh, or you're not. And if you're building your life on Christ, then there's an e- eternal blessing. And if you're not building your life on Christ, then, then there's eternal uh, cursing. And that's where, the, that's where Jesus' sermon ends. So his introduction is important because it's congruent, of course, with his uh, conclusion. And so he's saying, listen, what you're doing flows from who you are being. And who you are being is ultimately a product of what you're building your life, what you're building your life on. So broadly speaking, that's how we want to kind of understand um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in, in wide, broad categories. Now, what we're going to do this morning for the remainder of our, our time as we look at this text is we're going to look line by line at it. I'm not going to do a massive, you know, deep dive. You could do that, and there's probably benefits to doing that. But I, I am mindful that Jesus was sitting on a mountain, and there was a crowd of people there with their kids, and he literally said these things just as I read them to you, and he moved on for quite quite some time. So I'm mindful of that. So I want us to think about these things in 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 uh, in important ways, but perhaps not exhaustive ways. And so we can meditate uh, on these uh, over the next six weeks as we continue to keep deep diving into this this sermon. But I want us to look at um, three things. The first thing is I want us to consider how this is intended to be an inspiring description. Um, The second thing I want us to look at is that this actually gives us a sobering realization And then lastly, I want us to consider the hero who brings salvation and actually empowers this transformation. So firstly, the inspiring description. This is, without a doubt, the entire Sermon on the Mount. It is 
an inspiring description of how Christians ought to live. It is loaded with conversation about humility and meekness and righteousness and mercy, purity, peace, conversations about boldness and persecution. As the, as the sermon goes on beyond these beatitudes to the rest, you're going to get into massive themes like being salt and light in the earth, massive themes about sexual integrity. You know, don't give your body away if you're not giving your heart, your mind, your finances, your emotions, if you're not going to be 100% vulnerable and, and give your, give your uh, life uh, to your spouse in marriage uh, as a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband, if you are not willing to give yourself totally, then don't give yourself sexually. He gets into these massive themes, talks about the, the poor and care for the poor and generosity, teaches us how to pray, massive themes about how do we handle circumstances in our life, hostility, those that are you know, enemies against us, and sort of ends, this, ends the sermon with being a, a light, on a, a light on, a, on a hill like a city. And so this whole inspiring description, this whole teaching, it starts with the line being, being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, um, this is a poverty metaphor. This is an important metaphor. It's a poverty metaphor about our spiritual condition, right? Uh, that we're to be aware of our need for grace. This is how we all, how Jesus starts this. And from being poor in spirit, uh, aware of our need for grace, he talks about being blessed are those who mourn. And to mourn is to, is to be in a place of repentance. It's to see the brokenness of sin uh, in the world and for that to sadden us. It's to see that how the brokenness of sin, what it does in our own lives, in our own relationships. For, it, it's, it's repentance. And it moves on from being poor in spirit to the mourning to blessed are those who are meek. Meekness is this humble reliance. You know, li- living a life of dependence and not independence is meekness. It's not... All of this is not, you know, knuckle dragging, oh, I'm a worm, uh, you know, kind of draining people around us with this sort of Eeyore attitude. What this all is, is this creates attractive tenderness, caring for people around us. The passage moves on as he, as he keeps giving this inspiring description of what this life looks like, right? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Right? That means you are hungering and thir- thirsting after what God would say is good, if you're hungering and thirsting after it um, and not wanting to run away from it, that means something deep and pervasive has, has gone on in your heart. To hunger and thirst after righteousness, you know, uh, a life of integrity and justice, it's, it's this picture of not wanting what is most comfortable, but wanting what God would say is correct. And uh, from here, it goes on and, inc- and talks about, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Again, reminding us as Christians that if we are recipients of this scandalous, undeserved mercy, then that's going to play out in our lives. We are people of mercy. We are people of forgiveness. It, mercy and forgiveness changes the attitude we have toward the poor because they are a mirror of our own spiritual condition. It just radically transforms the way we see um, our, our lives, our resources, of, of time and a, and a financial resource. It goes on to say, blessed are the pure. This inspiring description of purity. When you think about this, this goes beyond just the motive of being, um, you know, pure in motives 
pure in your business dealings, pure in the way you handle relationships, pure in your, in your thought life, pure in sexuality, pure in heart. Purity, uh, biblically speaking, it means to be undivided. If something is pure, it means the impurities, impurities have been burned away and a whole substance remains. So to be pure in heart is to say, I haven't, my heart is undivided. I, I, my heart is not given to the things in the culture, the world, the city that are competing for my allegiance. Competing for my allegiance is such a way that I actually orbit my, right, my life around them and make them my small g mini god. So we get all of this. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Overcoming evil with good, bringing wisdom to situations. Peacemakers quite often find themselves standing between two hostile parties, getting punched from both sides. That's what happens when we're peacemakers. Gives this uh, incredible picture of uh, the willingness to do that. It goes on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. And this is, of course, key to being persecuted for uh, loving Jesus, being willing to give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in him, right? And so this, all of this, this is a massively inspiring description. We could take all day, we could take weeks, weeks and weeks breaking down how inspiring that kind of life would be if we were living it. And we you think about what kind, what kind of a community would that form if we were all living that way. Think about the kind of city it would be if just believers everywhere were just living this out in, with just tremendous intensity. So it's inspiring. It's an inspiring description. This is what Jesus is calling us to. That leads us into a sobering realization. A sobering realization that in and of our own strength, none of us can do this. We're not doing this. By the time you get to verse 48, I stopped this morning at verse 12. By the time you get to verse 48, Jesus drops this line in verse 48. And the line is, be perfect as I am perfect. So this is an inspiring description. No doubt, Christian, you and I, we call ourselves Christians. We're followers of Christ. We marvel at the scandalous grace of God. This is a description that we're called to this. It brings us to a sobering realization. We can't do this. Some of you may be exploring Christian faith and you're, and you're not sure what you believe about um, the resurrection of Jesus, but you often perhaps think to yourself, well, I'm good with the moral teachings of Jesus. And you're like, I'm not sure if he's God, if he's divine, but I think his teaching is good. So here's what I would um, challenge you with for those of you joining us in that situation. The sobering realization for you is this can't be your ethical blueprint because you, it's, it's an impossible standard. You, you can't... Uh, simply do this. In fact, um, to borrow from uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you, if, you, if you think that the Sermon on the Mount is just like a great ethical blueprint, you haven't really read the Sermon on the Mount. Once you really read it and really ponder it in detail, your prayer will be, oh God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and so, uh, because it's much, much deeper than doing. It's not an ethical checklist. Like the Pharisees would have been like, hey man, I'm 613 for 613. I'm getting it done. Jesus is like, you're the walking dead. This isn't just about doing, this is about becoming. And, uh, you know, for those of us who've um, uh, been in uh, believers for a while, and we've been in church for a while, and we've been Christians for a, a bit, you know, we understand it can't be an ethical blueprint. 
because uh, we are, uh, are, are, sorry, it can't merely be an ethical blueprint because we, we fail to do this. If you think, for example, you know, Jesus goes on in chapter six, you go to the next chapter and he's like, don't worry, does this peace on worry. Right, we're familiar with it. We're going to get to it in a couple of weeks. Don't worry. Well, we all worry. I don't, I don't mean worry. Christian, all Christians struggle with worry. And I don't mean worry as in Monday night, game seven, will the Leafs win? A bunch of you guys are really worried. I mean, on a more deeply pervasive level, worry fundamentally is the idea for a Christian. When a Christian worries, it's like, I know what my future should be like. And I think God might not be up to that task. I know what my future, you know, I know what ought to happen with my business, with my the situ- situation I'm dealing with this, this week. And God may let me down. I've been praying for quite a long time that on Thursday at 4.30, by the Spirit of God, this thing that I really need is going to happen. And if Thursday at 4.30 comes and that doesn't happen, I'm not sure God you know, is listening to my prayers. He might be asleep at the switch. We worry all the time uh, because we're concerned that somehow God isn't going to work our life out the way that we in our pride think that it ought to be the way that it ought to be. So just as a small example of how there's just a sobering realization that comes with the Sermon on the Mount um, that, uh, that we just can't do this, that it has to be beyond just things that we're doing. It's got to be something that by the power of the Spirit we are becoming, which leads to the final thing this morning. The final thing is the hero that offers salvation and actually empowers all this transformation. Um. Because before we can follow the wise, loving guidance of God's law, we must be recipients of God's grace. Many of you are parents of small children. And, and, and many of our little Redeemer kids running around, you know, they're going, to the, they're going to catechism classes with Susan and with the team. And, and you as parents are um, teaching your kids in the ways of God. And really, ultimately, and I say this all the time, ultimately what we are wanting to do with our children is get them to marvel at the hero that offers the salvation because that is the fuel, right? That marveling is going gonna, is gonna to fuel maturity. Without marveling, there is no maturity. If we are not people of worship, we will not become people of wisdom, godly wisdom. It will not happen. Worship precedes wisdom. Marveling precedes maturity. We have to understand this so that we can, as recipients of God's grace, really desire, not in a crushing way, but in a very liberating way, to walk in obedience to God's law. So I want to take you back to the beginning, the very first line, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Christianity starts here, right? Maturity and renewal starts here. Because to be, this is a poverty metaphor, and I want you to think about it this way. It's a poverty metaphor of your spiritual condition that we are bankrupt. And like I said before, the Pharisees would never describe themselves as bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. They would have said, absolutely no way. I've got 613 check marks in my daily devotional. Like, I'm pulling this off. And <laughs> what's interesting is self-righteous people, people of self-righteous faith and people of non-faith think the same way on this. They're not poor in spirit. Basically, if you take a self-righteous person a a person with self-righteous faith and a person of non-faith, they will talk about their ethical condition or their spiritual condition in the same way. They'll say something like this. Hey, listen, I'm a good person. I've made some mistakes. Sure, I got a lot of, you know, I've made a lot of moral, morally questionable decisions, but I've also made a lot of good ones. 
Okay, I'm not all bad. Uh, I've done some things I'm not proud of. I've done some things I regret. But also, I've got a long list of things I can tell you that I've done because I am quite sanctified and quite mature. And like, they always, they don't talk like they're bankrupt. They don't talk like they're poor. They're like, I got something in the bank. On a scale of Mother Teresa to Charles Manson, I'm somewhere in the, I'm a, that's the way they talk about their condition. They don't recognize it. They wouldn't go with this poverty metaphor. And the significance of this is that this is where, so for those of you exploring Christian faith, this is what you need to know, is that this all, this all begins with a recognition that I'm not bringing anything to the table and that I very much am in need of God's saving grace. And from that, blessed are the poor in spirit, unsurprisingly, it says, blessed are those who mourn, right? The repentance, blessed are the meek, the humble reliance. This is describing a dramatically transformed person. Uh, There's an Old Testament scholar, uh, Hebrew scholar and language scholar. His name is uh, Ian DeGood. And Ian DeGood uh, says that, um, you know, as as he's going to the original Hebrew and he's like, the way to understand blessed Blessed, because Jesus keeps repeating it. Blessed, 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 blessed. People, people who are blessed, or if you called somebody blessed, you're saying they're favored and they're in a position that inspires others to desire and emulate. It's like, if you're, a, if you're in a blessed position, everybody else is looking at your life and going, this is inspiring and motivating me to want to be this. In other words, it's like, that person is favored, and as a result of the position they're in, uh, it's like they're like a hero. And so because uh, De Good gives us this understanding of like really what that's saying, this is how he talks about uh, the beginning of this uh, teaching of Jesus. He goes, really, the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, it is, a, it is the profile of a hero. It keeps going down this list of here is someone that you want to aspire to be like. But then you read those verses that I just read to you, and this is a very strange hero. This hero is poor, and they're mourning, and they're meek, and they're hungering, and they're thirsting. My friends, the reason that these Beatitudes are supposed to increasingly describe us is because they perfectly describe him, and we are united to him. And united to him by the power of his grace, increasingly over the course of our lives, these things will describe us. The scripture says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus became poor so that through his poverty we could become rich and we have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because Jesus mourned at sin, you and I can mourn at our sin, knowing that we are not condemned. We are comforted. You will never be condemned as you mourn your your sin. You will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus was meek. And in the end, he will raise us to life and we will inherit the earth. We can live in this meekness. We can live in this reliance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they will be filled. As Jesus Christ, throughout his, his life, continued to hunger and thirst after righteousness, in the garden, we see it as he's obeying the Father, on the cross, as he is obeying the Father. The deepest level of our souls, we can be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus received no mercy so that you and I could get mercy. And from this scandalous mercy, we then become people of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus was perfectly pure. Jesus was perfectly undivided. And so because he was perfectly pure, perfectly undivided, you and I get to see God. And we now then desire to live this way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus suffered at the hands of injustice so that we can be people of mercy, so that we can be peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was crucified and so that his righteousness could be ours, so that united to him we are declared righteous. And that by this amazing grace, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was all of these things for us. And now united to him, filled by his spirit, we are empowered to increasingly resemble all these things for others. By God's empowering grace, may we endeavor to reflect his love and his light in the world as the moon reflects the light of the sun. Let's pray.